CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. It's time once again for the latest episode of the Coin World Podcast. We're well over three years now into this journey, and certainly it's been a great time for all of us, and I certainly hope you feel the same way about that. Our thanks once again to CoinWorld Plus for stepping on board for this one to help us out. Check them out at CoinWorldPlus.com. I'm Larry Jewett. I'm Chris Bullfinch. Chris, glad to have you along here today as we've got a great show planned for us. I mean, you've been doing some research on some of the things that have been happening here lately, and you came across an interesting story regarding a, a very special metal. So I'd like you to open up the discussion concerning that. Yeah, absolutely. People who follow uh, numismatic news, um, not a reference to the publication numismatic <laughs> news, um, people who follow the news of numismatics, maybe. Uh, that's a slightly less efficient way of saying that. Uh, may have noticed um, that a price record was recently broken. The most expensive American metal uh, has uh, recently crossed the auction block for $960,000. It's a 1839 Battle of Cowpens um, gold medal. Um, it's thought to be the only gold um, Comitia Americana medal in private hands, and it's a replacement for a gold medal that was awarded to a Revolutionary War General, Daniel Morgan, for his service at the Battle of Cowpens, which took place in early 1781. So this is a really remarkable piece, and it grabbed headlines. I believe CBS News reported on it. I think I saw that as I was uh, looking at CoinWorld's coverage, which will drop um, our colleague, Paul Jilks, who's been on the podcast, and he's he's a friend of the pod and, uh, and a great colleague who did some good reporting on this, uh, will drop... Um, his uh, last couple articles covering the discovery of the metal and it's coming to auction and the result. We'll drop his coverage uh, down in the show notes so you all can can read about it in depth. But it's really a remarkable piece. Uh, and so, yeah, that was sort of the, the headline news. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting story, too, because, I mean, the metals and the idea of the, you know, the heritage of this particular metal, the historic value of it, uh, what they went through to get this metal, the fact that it's... Uh, got so much involved. It's a very, very interesting read. If you're a student of history and uh, trying to understand it, it's interesting that the uh, bidding was so spirited. And uh, obviously somebody wanted this because it far exceeded what their expectation was as far as uh, how much it was going to bring at auctions, which, you know, that just brings us to a subject. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later on in the program as we speak with Greg Cohen, the senior numismatist at Legend Rare Coin Auctions. And that's about how these estimations sometimes, how they come about with that and how they get into that information and uh, what just how important those estimations actually are. So give a listen for that later on. And and this medal exceeded its um exceeded its estimate. Um, John Karlovich is quoted in a couple of pieces that I read on it. Uh, John Karlovich is a former podcast guest, um, who you know we've we've talked to. Um, I think all of us have talked to him uh, for different stories. And like I said, we interviewed him on the podcast too. So definitely, if you haven't heard our interview with him, definitely go back and check that out. He's quoted or at least referenced as as estimating these things. Uh, this medal, this eighteen thirty nine medal to be worth uh, between a quarter and half million dollars, $250,000 to $500,000. So it shattered the estimate um, going for $960,000. So, and that's in a Stax Bauer sale. It's a remarkable metal and it's uh, now a remarkable sale. And I, it broke the price record for uh, American metals. That's major, sort of the major headline that, and also, you know, it broke into the mainstream press. It's not, you know, it's not often that uh, the mainstream press reports on, on numismatic issues or really on coins or metals in general. So to see a story kind of break through is, is always interesting. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Just reminds us of the time last year when we had the uh, St. Gaudens coin going up through there. But uh, just the idea that somebody wanted this and wanted it real bad, it's going to really be uh, an enhancement to somebody's collection to uh, make that kind of commitment to get that to add to there. there. So, you know, you hear a lot of times about the coins and sometimes the metals don't get the attention. But like you mentioned, it's always good to see that the mainstream media finds some interest there and comes on through that. I mean, it's it's always great to know it's going to be something that somebody's going to say, hey, yeah, I saw that. And uh, they may not be in the numismatic world, but they, they're interested. Yeah, just some way that you can 
get people involved in that. So it's a, it's a really good story, and we invite you to read all the coverage that has been taking place and will continue to take place. I just can't wait to find out who actually owns it. Did you buy it? Uh, no, surprisingly, I uh, I didn't sell my kidneys or anything, and I don't think <laughs> my kidneys would probably be. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I would have fetched enough for uh, any of my organs to buy the uh, to buy the metal. So no, uh, sadly, I was not. Uh, sadly, I was not the buyer. It would have been an amazing piece to have. It's, it's history, is you know, and again, people can go down and, and check out the coverage. But its history is absolutely fascinating. You know, it was designed by um, Augustine Dupre, who designed the um, Libertas Americana medal. Just fascinating. So go definitely go check out that uh, that coverage. And you know, if you Google around too, you'll find uh, stories in the mainstream and numismatic press covering it. So you know, anyone who's interested can find um, a pretty pretty wide range. I actually it prompted me to research the Battle of Cowpens. I'd heard of it. I mean, you know, we, we touched on it in a an American Revolutionary History course I took in college. But you know, it, you know, we'd mentioned it, but I hadn't um, you know looked into it to get sort of the details of the battle, some of the backdrop of it. So. It prompted me to do a little bit of non-numismatic historical research too. So you know, it's it's always nice when these stories can kind of wet collector or public interest in different facets of American history. So yeah, anyway, with that said, you know, we're talking about the events of of this week. We're talking about you know a, a major story. You kind of went back in time. You were checking out the week that was. So what um what was happening this week in numismatic history? There's so many good things happening in April that uh, you know you just had to know I was going to come across something. That was going to be uh, very important right about that time. In fact, uh, looking at the week of April 13th through the 19th and uh, finding out that there were a couple of things right from the same era where we were talking about here, the Battle of Calpins in the 1780s. We have one on, on April 18th, uh, 1776, George Washington writes the Continental Congress and expresses appreciation for their voting him a gold medal for occupying Boston. Hmm, kind of interesting there. Another one from the 19th was the year 1775, and that was, of course, the date of the Battle of Lexington, shown on the face of the first charter $20 national banknotes. But the one that intrigued me the most was actually on April 15th, and it happened in 1790. And I bet you would know what, it, what we're talking about here, but I'm not going to put you on the spot again. Congress instructs Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton to prepare and report a proper plan for the establishment of a national mint. You know, I I really wish that they had elaborated on that in Hamilton a little bit. I think that would have made for a really nice musical number. Um, something about striking coins. Anyway, um, well, that that's fascinating. So they asked Hamilton for a report. Is there any other... Uh, any other juicy numismatic events that are around this time in the past? Oh, there are quite a few of them, as a matter of fact. The one I found of interest was actually from the 1900s. And uh, I'm trying to find where it was right there. There it is. It's from 1910. The Bureau of Engraving and Printing Director suggests to Treasurer Lee McClung that the Bureau be authorized to prepare special character notes, meaning star notes, Distinguished from regular numbered notes. For those who are collecting on the paper side of things, that was an interesting development that happened 112 years ago. So, a lot of great things happening in the past, but a lot of great things are happening in the future, too, as we're going to be talking about an upcoming event in connection with the Central States Numismatic Society Convention, which will be getting underway later on in this month. And will be there, and the Coin World Podcast will be there. Coin World Plus will be there as well, as a matter of fact. So we're looking forward to that. And we'll talk a little bit more about an auction in connection with that show in Schaumburg, Illinois, when we speak to Greg Cohen, the senior numismatist at Legend Rare Coin Auctions. But Legend Rare Coin Auctions came about in the year 2012. So that's where we're going to go back to this week in Coin World history. We're going to go back to the year 2012 and take a look at the April 9th edition that we were talking about. And on the cover, they were talking about the Chester Arthur presidential dollars. And those were the first ones because the low mintage, those were the first ones not to be in circulation. A pretty important story. But the story I found of interest was actually began back on page four. And it was entitled, New Payment Systems Get Hearing In-House. And what it was talking about is, it says, new payment systems that do not involve U.S. coinage and paper money generated quite a stir during a March 22nd hearing in the U.S. House of Representatives. And with all the continuing talk of a cashless society, this one naturally piqued my interest. 
says, told that a new electronic payment system using smartphones is likely to sweep the United States in the next five years. The leaders of the House Subcommittee on Financial Institutions and Consumer Credit were almost giddy with excitement. We're on the precipice of fundamental changes in the way money is exchanged between consumers and businesses, said Subcommittee Chairman Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia. She opened that future of money hearing. Well, we know what the future happened, and uh, we know that a substantial amount of cashless transactions are pretty much taking place, as a a matter of fact. So it was just interesting to see this was kind of the, the grassroots here as they further went on to explain that other parts of the world were already well down the path and the U.S. was kind of behind. And if we were going to get on this train, we needed to get on this train pretty quick. And we got on the train and we got on the train pretty quick. So Coin World doing their reporting right there. In fact, Beth Deicher even wrote her editorial concerning that very same subject. So that goes back 10 years ago, back to the year 2012 in the April 9th issue. On down, I'm sure there were a few letters that were of interest, even though they're 10 years old. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, we all we love reviewing the letters to see what was on the minds of uh, Coin World readers and other people who just write these kinds of letters, um, though I, I would hope that most of them are, uh, are reading are reading the different issues. There are three letters that kind of stood out to me. Um, all were sort of on the shorter side. One was very brief, but we're going to start with kind of a medium length one, which I highlighted for two reasons. The first is that it's always interesting to see reader letters and coverage in general that presages um, events that actually occur, if that makes any sense. It's always interesting to see the way that a story develops over time. And I also highlighted this letter because it raises what I think is an interesting issue that collectors might reflect on in terms of buying uh, modern U.S. Mint products. So without further ado, the first letter is entitled, Proof Sets Are Not for Bullion, and it reads, Regarding the Mint's proposal to make the silver coins and silver proof sets 0.999 fine rather than 900 fine, The U.S. Mint's uh, collector coin program is intended to appeal to collectors through its various products. It differs from the Mint's Boolean program. The Mint does not market the 90% silver proof coins as a Boolean product, but as a collector product, correctly acknowledging the 90% silver alloy as historical coin silver. History and tradition matter to collectors. Those familiar with the collector market know this. If my interest is in the mint silver bullion, I'll buy American Eagle silver bullion coins, not silver proof sets. The mint should not disregard its product marketing. This is written by someone named Glenn Haugen, spelled H-A-U-G-E-N. So if any of you have a better idea how to pronounce that than I do, I welcome your letters. And it's from Los Angeles. And I, this was interesting to me for a couple of reasons. First of that, so you know, thinking about when this uh, edition of Corn World was published, it was published in 2012. In late 2015, then President Obama signed the FAST Act, and which was it was a major piece of legislation that dealt with a number of different things, but attached to it were a few provisions about which investors would be interested. And one of them was changing language. It was kind of a subtle legislative change uh, to the language about the composition of coins and silver proof sets. Um, the 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 phrase the phrasing was changed. Uh, to not less than 90% silver, where before the specific alloy, 90% silver and 10% copper, had been specified, this kind of loosened that, which allowed for some latitude. So basically, as long as it's 90% silver, you could go higher. You could do sterling silver, 0.925 fine silver, or whatever other silver fineness you wanted, up to 0.999 fine, Uh, or even finer, but I think that's that's the sort of threshold that they adopted, or that's the sort of upper limit that they adopted. So... I found this interesting because this was published in 2012. The you know this legislative change comes about in December of 2015, but the alloy, the 90% silver alloy, actually wasn't dropped until 2000, entirely dropped until 2019. Um, you know, coins included in the 2019 silver proof set were 0.999 fine as opposed to 0.9 fine. So the change to which this reader seems to be objecting actually came about a few years after the publication of the, of their letter and we'll include um, Paul Jilks. Again, we're going to be mentioning him a bit on the show and we mention him a lot. Um, his coverage of um, that change back in 2019, I'll drop a story that he wrote about that so that people can, um, can check out when this change actually happened and when the fineness was sort of fully raised. But also to me, this letter is not only interesting to the extent, like I said earlier, that it presages a kind of development that occurred years later, but it's also interesting in, in the fact that it, it raises a question about what constitutes a Boolean product. 
and the reader, I think, correctly points out that the 90% silver silver proof sets were not intended as Boolean products. They're not priced as Boolean products. They're not competitive on the Boolean market because there's a fairly substantial markup, at least as compared to you know buying a, an American Silver Eagle, um, an American Silver Eagle that is not one of with a special finish or a special strike. You know, there are there are American Silver Eagles that are meant to be collector coins, and there are American Eagle. Um, silver bullion coins that are intended to be, you know, to be held as an investment in physical silver. But it does draw that interesting question, which is, you know, was the Mint's effort to increase, was the legislative change and then the Mint eventually raising the fineness? Where I disagree with the reader or I think that their point, you know, might be, it, I mean, if we had the opportunity to go back to 2012 and ask them what they meant, it would be, uh, that would be nice. But I don't know that the the increase in silver fineness was meant to turn the silver proof sets into a Boolean product. You know, we could debate the reasons for the legislative change and people who read Paul's article can dig into this. And it's, it's an interesting little tidbit, uh, that change in composition. But uh, all this is just to say that it does raise that interesting question of what is a Boolean product and what is a numismatic product? You know, the precedent that the reader cites, that history, you know, the collectors care about the history and the 900 fine alloy sort of has historical precedent behind it. That's interesting because you can't really put a dollar value on historical precedent, at least not in this specific context. I mean, does it significantly enhance a collector's enjoyment? You know, if their silver proof set is 900 fine as opposed to 0.999 fine, is there real collector value there? I'd actually found, I mean, hey, if any of you listeners have thoughts about this, if any of you have feelings about this, go check out Paul's reporting and, uh, you know, shoot me or the podcast in general, you know, shoot us an email, uh, you know, tell us what you think. But I, I found, so I found that letter really interesting. And so that's, that's the first letter. The second is much shorter and it's entitled First Rate. Uh, and it reads, Rusty Goh's article on the 1870cc Coronet Gold $20 uh, Double Eagle, March 19th, Coin World, it was, the article was published in the March 19th, 2012 edition, presumably, uh, is first rate. I would give it an A+, right on. His facts are excellent, plus his conclusion of 55 to 65 survivors is on the money. I started buying gold coins a while ago, and I agree with everything said. Good for Coin World to publish this outstanding research. And this is from someone named Stan Kesselman out of New York City. And I highlighted this letter... Also for two reasons, though I don't think quite as uh, I don't think quite as substantial a discussion could be had about either of my reasons. Uh, the first is that we you all interviewed Rusty Go shortly before I rejoined the podcast uh, after he published his magnum opus. I think it's fair to describe it that way, and if not magnum opus, at least a very very substantial work of uh, the Confident Carson City Collector, a uh, three volume, an excellent three volume set on the coinage of Carson City. That for anyone wanting to collect coins uh, struck at that facility, that's a you know it's it's a very important volume to have because um, it represents extraordinary in-depth research. So not only did I think it was interesting because I saw a familiar name pop up, but it's also just nice to see a positive letter. I'm glad, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm all for criticism. People should write in whenever they, uh, you know, with their perspective, whether positive or negative, critical or laudatory. Um, they should absolutely feel feel free to do that. But, you know, every once in a while, it's nice to, to focus on the positives. So that leads me to my final letter, which is entitled, Coins Could Help Storm Victims. And it reads, quote, Hey, I've got a good idea, which is an awesome way to open a letter, by the way. Um, what would be wrong with the government and the United States Mint establishing a program that would include the minting and sale of a coin to aid in the relief and recovery from our recent tornado tragedies, or to only countries that care about their people do something like that, e.g. Japan and Canada? Come on, government and mint! Exclamation point. Um, let's do what's right. The American public can only do so much in the way of donations and volunteerism, but the coin-collecting public will do uh, more than their fair share to carry the extra load. I, for one, will, and uh, you know you will too. Those poor people have had their lives forever changed, so let's try to change it for the better. That's from uh, someone named Michael P. Shemeyer of Spencer, New York. And I highlighted that just because, you know, the, the proceeds from the sales of different commemorative coins are, you know, donated to different organizations. Um, you all should absolutely look into the way that those um, commemorative themes are chosen and the, and the recipient organizations. It's very interesting. I found this interesting just because it, it is an interesting idea. You know, what philanthropic efforts can numismatics support? You know, what, you know, whether through the U.S. Mint or whether coin dealers or numismatic organizations, you know, numismatic philanthropy, there actually is quite a bit of numismatic philanthropy out there. And I thought it was interesting that this person was suggesting you know, this person was suggesting another potential avenue for that. So those uh, those were the letters that I found interesting. This what jumped out at me on the letters to the editor page. 
certainly have a great variety of letters there too, and those were all informative. And uh, you know, especially thinking about the last one, it's a good intention, but I mean, it takes a little while to come up with a product, get the design, get approval, that type of thing. So that may not uh, may not be as simple as as you want it to be. But that was oh, it's uh, oh, oh, to be sure, it's much easier yeah. said than done. You know, it's, oh, yeah, you have yeah. to have legislative efforts to get the the bills passed, and then obviously, like you said, they have to solicit designs and see which designs are feasible to strike. It's not, it's obviously a very complicated process. You can't just snap your fingers. Um, no matter how worthy the cause, you can't just snap your fingers and have it happen. But I just I thought that raising that as a potential you know, raising tornado victims as a potential, you know, recipient of funds from a commemorative coin program in general, I just found interesting. Yep. Yeah, definitely. So, well, hopefully you find interesting the trivia question that uh, Jeff asked us recently here. And uh, that was uh, in connection with the uh, recent episode we had with Dr. Ellen Feingold back on the podcast on the now opened really big money exhibit that was happening at the Smithsonian Institution. It's a must-see in on my list for sure. But uh, Jeff asked the question about the origin of the Smithsonian, and he uh, mentioned James Smithson had uh, come up with the funds that were going to be to establish this educational aspect of American culture. And Jeff's question was, how much was it, and uh, what type of coins were they? So, if you heard the podcast recently launched, and then maybe you have some kind of idea that you can shed some light on this. Yeah, the, the payment took the form of uh, sovereigns, gold sovereigns. And I believe it was 104,960 sovereigns, which I think you know translates to roughly $508,318. That's it. It's very precise. I found this information. Give or take. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah you know, there, there might be, might be a couple cents different, but yeah, it's that's, it, so it was in sovereigns and it was just over a hundred thousand uh, gold sovereigns. Yeah. That's right on the money right there. So you're very good on that one. So if uh, normally when you get the answer right, you get the chance to ask the question, but this time that's not going to happen. So <laughs> no, no, no. I, I leave, uh, I leave the uh, prerogative uh, for answering or uh, asking the question to the, uh, you know, the more, uh, you know, the, the podcast elders here. Oh, so I'll, uh, wait a minute. You were the original now. Come on. <laughs> I know. Well, no, you know what? I, you I, I, my I, episodes, I, I don't think I've equals yours yet. So uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. But anyway, what, what is this question, Larry? Okay. The question uh, has to center around uh, one of the things we talked about earlier was all these things that happened in the month of April. And one of the things I always remember historically that happened in the month of April was the sinking of the Titanic 110 years ago, back in 1912. And so I, I did a little research, went into the Coin World archives and did a little research and found out that there was um, a story written by our colleague Jeff Stark a few years back that centered on a coin that was recovered from the wreckage of the Titanic. So um, I want you to tell me, basically, the, the coin sold at auction, and uh, it was found on the person of the individual and sold for over $20,000. I just want you to tell me the year and the denomination of that particular coin. And it seems to me that there was a recent popular culture point that uh, brought that coin back up. Don't know if it went back on sale or what the situation was. But we had uh, the story that Jeff had written regarding this particular coin. And I want you to tell me what kind of coin was it. Sold for over $20,000, and you can just give me the year, the mint, and the denomination, and we'll be Ooh, good. I, 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 think, I think I know what it is, but I'm not totally sure. So I will rack my brains and reflect on, a, you know, see if I can't uh, conjure up that information by the time, uh, you know, by the time we all get back together. In the interim, we had a great time talking to Greg Cohen of Legend Rare Coin Auctions about the upcoming uh, Regency 51 sale uh, that's going to be at the Central States Numismatic Society Convention uh, that's coming up in, in a few weeks here. Uh, we found the interview very informative, especially for anyone who's interested in uh, the Regency sales. Give that a listen. Um, we really hope that you enjoy it, and uh, we'll, see you back, uh, we'll see you back after the interview to uh, wrap things up. Coin World Podcast is delighted to have Greg Cohen, the senior numismatist of the Legend Auctions, on board with us here today. Got a very, very special event coming up very, very soon, as a matter of fact, and we're going to get to know Greg a little better and a little bit about what Legends has in store for us coming up here in the next few weeks, as a matter of fact. Greg, welcome aboard. Great to be here. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about you first off. I mean, obviously, the job that you have is a very, very critical job. And uh, how did you uh, become interested in numismatics and how did you get on board with Legend Rare Coin Auctions? Well, I started when I was about six or seven. My grandfather gave me some coins that he had set back over the years and then got more involved with it when I was in high school. I started attending um, A&A conventions. I started going to coin auctions. And when I graduated college, I became a full-time uh, numismatist, first working for R.M. Smythe and Company, and then going uptown a little bit to uh, Stacks. And then in 2016, I started working for Legend Rare Coin Auctions. Uh, something I found really interesting was uh, you wrote a uh, top 10 coins I'd like to own list for Coin Week. I think it was published at some point last year. Uh, we'll yeah. drop. You know, I think that talking about individual coins that fascinate people can tell you a little bit about not only their collecting interests, but can tell you a little bit about what periods of history they might like, etc. So I'd be really curious to hear a little bit about how you put that top 10 list together and why you included a couple of the pieces you did. You included some really neat stuff. Could you talk about a couple of things you included and why? Sure. So I come from Hillsdale, New Jersey, which is a small town in northern Bergen County. Um, it also happens to be one of the banks that issued national currency, uh, national banknotes. So I've always wanted to have an example of a Hillsdale, New Jersey national banknote. My grandfather, the one I mentioned, got me started in this hobby, um, was born in 1927. So Recently, I've been tossing around the idea of doing a collection of coins from 1927, and I believe in the article I mentioned uh, the coin would have been the Walking Liberty, the 27S Walking Liberty, and it's a one you know it's the only mint that struck half dollars in 1927. It's a cool coin, semi-key in mint state grade, so that's one of the coins, and. The other item that I would mention um, that I mentioned in the article was a 250th anniversary of Jewish Settlement in America medal that was issued in 1903 or 1904. It's just a beautiful allegorical medal. They're known in um, bronze, silver, and in gold. Eliasberg had the only gold one or one of two gold known examples. And it's just a very big, impressive medal that I've always always loved. That's neat. There's some great selections in there too, especially on the currency side of things. But now with your position that you have at Legend Rare Coin Auctions, give us a little bit of a description of what you do. I mean, it might be easier to say, uh, shorter actually, to say what you don't do, but what do you, uh, what is your job entail? As senior numismatist, I am the primary cataloger of all the auctions. So if we have a 500-lot auction, I've cataloged the vast majority, probably 90% of them. And then anything that I didn't catalog, I've edited and worked on description, you know, beefing up descriptions or fixing, you know. So I'm involved in, in making sure every coin has a, an accurate and interesting description for the, for the bidder to read. There you go, Chris. You were talking earlier about the de descriptions and how uh, Legend has some some really great descriptions. <laughs> yeah, that is one thing Larry and I were talking about. We found the um, the language used in uh, in in some of the Legend uh, lot descriptions we were reading. Um, we we found some of them pretty vivid and, and fun to read. So um, it's interesting. To, I've written a little bit about, I, I put together a lengthy piece about a year, year and a half ago talking about, um, how, the concept was how to read an auction catalog, um, which, you know, seems straightforward to someone who has done it, but for other people, it's more challenging because there are acronyms and jargon and things that might not be immediately familiar to the uninitiated. Do you find that striking a tone? Obviously, you know, we're talking about how, you know, the legend um, descriptions are fun to read. But do you find that striking a tone between engaging a really knowledgeable collector and trying to engage someone who might not know as much? Do you find that that's a difficult balance to strike? Or do you find that you write more for the specialist? That the idea is we need to communicate the pertinent details to the specialist about this and other people can kind of catch up to it. Do you find that's a hard balance to strike? And if so, how do you go about it? It is a hard balance to strike. The way I like to catalog is I like to explain why the coin is rare or important first. Explain why someone wants to own this coin, whether it's because the toning is absolutely gorgeous 
or it's a coin that is unique and is the only example known. Right off the bat, I want to have some kind of fact that's going to draw the person in to read the rest of the description. Um, one thing I always try to do is paint the picture of the coin so that if there is no image of the coin, you get an idea of what it looks like. Um, making sure that minor, even the most minor flaws are pointed out, not in a way that's going to quote unquote kill the coin, but so that when you get the coin in hand, you know that they're there. You can, you know, images can hide minor flaws and you don't, you might not see a scratch or a mark or whatever um, in that photo. So we, in my descriptions, I will say, you know, there are some contact marks that you need a glass to see. Um, I try to strike that balance, though, so that a newly minted collector will understand and appreciate the description as well as somebody who's been collecting for the last 50 years because the client the collector base today has both you have well-heeled collectors who are just starting out and you've got collectors who've been doing this for longer than I've been on the planet. So trying to strike the right tone that will engage both of them is really my goal. The event that we're most excited about, as we mentioned, coming up very soon, that's uh, Regency 51. So because it's number 51, obviously, not your first rodeo at this, um, tell us a little bit about the history of the Regency auctions and how they came about. Legend Rare Coin Auctions was started by Laura Sperber, who's the owner of Legend Numismatics, one of the premier coin, retail coin dealerships in the United States. And she wanted to start a company that was different than the other auction houses, more focused on quality coins um, rather than having massive phone book sized auction catalogs. We would be more of a boutique the Regency auctions are generally limited to about 500 coins per session. And if it gets to be larger, um, then we'll split it off into two sessions. We don't want, as a person who has participated in thousands of auctions over the course of her career, Laura didn't want our collectors having to sit through auction sessions that go to one, one or two o'clock in the morning. So the experience um, that we've brought to the creation of Legend Rare Coin Auctions was to bring more high-quality coins, but not necessarily have to have thousands of coins per auction. And again, striking the right balance. You know, we want to have really high-end quality coins um, of all U.S. series, and we, speci we focus only on U.S. coins. So I'm glad you said that because that you're getting into some of the parameters around the material that can be submitted to a Regency auction. If any of our listeners, just to sort of personalize it for the listeners, if any of our listeners wanted to consign something to a, um, to a Regency auction, could you specifically describe all of the parameters around the material? And what are the advantages to these parameters? You sort of got to it when you were saying that the boutique style allows collectors to avoid really lengthy auctions. Could you elaborate a little bit on the parameters? Sure. So... These are guidelines, um, but generally speaking, minimum total consignment value is going to be $15,000 um, with an average lot value of $2,500 to $3,000. Um, coins that are valued under $1,000 are going to be put into our newly created online session, which will close on the Sunday after the Regency auction. So in the past where we might not have taken a five or $600 coin because it's just not economical, we now have a venue that goes right along with the Regency sale published in the catalog for those coins. Most of our auctions are held as the official auctioneer for the PCGS members only show. 
So PCGS graded coins is usually our brand. CAC approval is also a benefit and we will submit for the client um, to CAC if they haven't been already. Um, but that boutique also entails the fact that we will not duplicate coins. So if you've sat through and leafed through auction catalogs, you might find five or six examples of the same coin in the same grade, in the same grading services holder, right in a row. We won't do that. Um, and the reason being, we don't want to make a coin look common like that. You know, you could have a coin that's pop five and have four of them, one right after the other. And that makes the coin look more common than it is. So if we've already got an example, we'll tell the consigner of the second one, you know what, we've already got one. Can we hold it for the next auction? Um, and this way, and everybody's appreciative of that. But other than that, um, there's the only other guideline is that the coin is U.S. Uh, is a U.S. coin. We don't do foreign coins. We don't do coins that are in details or genuine holders. Everything has to have a numeric grade. That makes sense if you're striving for quality, certainly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, and, and and the material has to quote unquote grade straight to use the to use the term. It, like you said, Correct. no details, yep. no. Yep. Alrighty. And obviously, you know, if we see a coin that's consigned and it's been, you know, even if it's in a straight graded holder to use the term, but it's been clearly doctored, you know, there's smoothing in the fields or there's artificially, or, you know, the coin is artificially toned. We will return the coin to the consigner. We won't sell doctored coins. You mentioned earlier about an online only auction. I mean, that that's something that basically you just provided news to me. I wasn't aware that there was such a thing. Yeah, we um over the years we've we've done various different um online auctions. We had monthly what we called premiere sessions and then we started doing we experimented with a weekly uh internet auction program and they sort of took away our attention from the core business of Legend Rare Coin Auction. We decided uh, earlier this year, and the first one will be held in um, held in Central States uh, with our Central States Regency Fifty One. Will be an online only uh, session that will close on Sunday, the first of May. And again, those are going to be coins that are. Under a thousand dollars value, or possibly a series that's just not our bread and butter, but it's part of a larger consignment. But everything is again selected for quality. Just it doesn't meet the price guide, you know, the value parameter of the Regency session. But it certainly gives someone an entry point where they can understand the Legend Rare Coin auctions. Uh, you know, understand what the Legend Rare Coin Auctions is all about. They certainly had that opportunity to experience it and be close to Regency 51 then. Absolutely. And the session, is, the online session is fully cataloged, fully photographed, both in the catalog and online. It just, it, it's not just name, rank, and serial number. There are descriptions and photographs in both the catalog and online. So basically what it meant is more work for you. <laughs> yeah, slightly more, but you know what? If it makes the consigners happy and if it makes the, you know, it provides the bidders more material to bid on, then I don't have an issue. You know, I feel that that's a win-win for everybody. We want to talk a little bit more about some of the specifics of Regency 51, but uh, earlier we, we talked about the fact that the Regency auctions have been going on for some time. How frequently are our Regency auctions in the course of a calendar year? 2022, we have seven. We are usually do between five or six in conjunction with the PCGS members only shows. And in 2021, we were awarded the one of the official auctions for the Central States Convention. So last year, unfortunately, because of COVID, the Central States show did not happen, 
but we held our central states auction at a PCGS show that was put into the schedule as a replacement for the central states show. And then this year is our first one in Schaumburg uh, with the full convention. So everything is in place for Schaumburg and uh, Legends Regency 51. How long does it take for a consigner to make the consignment and see his or her uh, coin or collection in a Legend Rare Coin auction? Well, the longest stretch between consignment deadlines and auction dates is this Central States auction. Our Regency 50 was at the end of January. So we started soliciting consignments for central states as our primary focus of future auctions in December. And so it's five months, it'll be four and a half, five months from the earliest consignments that came in to the sale. And then we, the settlement goes out 35 days after the auction. And the, the purpose for that question, obviously, if someone's thinking about doing this, don't expect your coin to go up a week from now because there's a no. lot of things that have to be done here. And I think sometimes people don't understand that, especially if they're somewhat new to this or they've inherited something that uh, perhaps they don't get a full understanding. And that's why I appreciate you taking the time to explain mm-hmm. that. Going forward in 2022, our consignment deadlines are much more consolidated. Um, We basically have one from now until the end of the year every six weeks. So the lead time between auctions from this point on is a lot shorter. So it won't be a full six-month gap between when the consignment happens and and settlement. Um, I wanted to make that clear. But yeah, this is not... These are... Auctions are not an overnight thing. It takes a lot of effort from our team, not just myself cataloging the coins, but our photographer and art director who takes images of all the coins and does all the layout for the catalogs, does all the layout for all our ads that appear in Coin World and other publications that goes into marketing every auction. So you're laying out a number of moving parts and any numismatic auction obviously has a tremendous amount of behind the scenes work that goes into it. Could you elaborate a little bit more on some of those logistical difficulties that might not be immediately obvious to bidders or consigners or just, you know, people in the numismatic world kind of looking at these things from afar? I wouldn't call them difficulties. Um, It's a very straightforward, simple process. The coins come in, they get uh, loaded into our inventory software. Then if there's coins that need to go for crossover or regrade or to CAC, we take care of all of that. Once they're back, they get photographed and then they go into the boxes for me to catalog. And then once I'm done cataloging, we physically lot every auction, putting all the coins in order. And then our catalog goes into production and our our art director, Patrick, inserts all the descriptions, inserts all the photographs. We then get PDFs of the of the galleys of the of the catalog. We proofread and check, make sure the images are correct and, and the sale is in the right order. And then it goes off to the printer and we put the sale up on our website for people to bid. It's very straightforward process. So let's get into some of the specifics of Regency 51 because it's coming up here and, and certainly we want everybody to pay close attention to some of these things that are going on. It seems like by looking over it, we start off with a collection. Is it uh, common to start with a collection rather than a single coin? For legend, yeah. What we do is we try to keep collections together. The collector who put together, who spent years putting together a collection. We want to present their the fruits of their labor, so to speak. So Regency 51 starts out with part one of the Dale Friend collection. Dale is a very well-known collect was a very well-known collector. Unfortunately, he passed last year, and we were honored to sell 
what's left of his collection, which includes um, the anchor of re- the first part of Regency 51, which is his bus dollar collection. Dale put together a fabulous set of early dollars from 1795 to 1803 and is pretty much a complete red book set of early dollar uh, varieties. And every coin has that Dale friend look. The coins that Dale collected didn't need to be the finest known of a specific issue, but every coin had to have that something special. And if you look at his early dollars, you can definitely tell that those were all Dale friend coins. They all have that special something to them. So after from the Dale Friends collection, we go into the regular run of U.S. coins, um, starting with a Vermont copper, pretty scarce variety, and then going into early U.S. federal copper, and it goes on from there. About halfway through the sale, we have part one of the Glorious Patterns collection, which is about 30-some patterns from a longtime client of Legend Numismatics and Legend Rare Coin Auctions. And it features a lot of really great pattern-type coins, mostly in what I would call a collector... It's a collector variety, meaning that there's not that many really expensive examples... They're all in the foreign, most of them are in the four and low five figure price range, um, which makes them affordable for a lot of collectors. And when you think about patterns, they are so rare in comparison to regular U.S. federal coinage of the same era. And you could buy a coin that has three or four examples known for a slight premium over a regular issue from the same year. It just, it's mind boggling how inexpensive comparatively uh, the patterns are. Regency 51 also has a fantastic selection, um, one of our best in quite a while, of toned Morgan dollars. And that's an area that we've kind of made a specialty of. We've handled some amazing collections of tone dollars over the years. The Simpson Sunnywood set, the Roadrunner collection, the Northern Lights collection. We handled David Hall, the founder of PCGS. We handled his collection of tone dollars. So we've got a great selection this time around of tone dollars. And then we close off the sale with a great offering of U.S. gold which right now in this market in 2022 has been one of the hottest areas, especially in this market that's been pretty active and very strong the last year or so. Uh, Gold has outperformed pretty much every other area. So closing off the sale strong with some really nice gold is a great way to do it. It's not just any gold either. It's some spectacular items. Yeah, 20th century gold pieces, St. Gaudens uh, 20s and Indian Head 10s and Indian Head 5s. There's a lot of really, and fresh, there's a lot of fresh gold in this sale. So when Regency 51 is all said and done, when when everything is has either sold or been rolled into the next auction, how will you judge, you, you all, all of you at Legend, but you know we're speaking to you, how would you all judge the success of an auction? What benchmarks do you use? I mean, you know, price is realized is obviously a place to start, but do you have any other sort of metrics or benchmarks by which you judge success of any given auction? And what have you all learned over, you know, this is Regency 51, this has been going on a while. What have you all learned over the course of doing this? And how have you applied some of those lessons into the current one and into the future of uh, different Regency auctions? That's a good question. Um, The benchmarks, obviously, that we use is we look at overall price realized. That's sort of the standard answer. But what we also look at is what the percentage of collectors versus dealers participated. And one of the things that we've noticed with our auctions is that the overall majority of the sale, you know, ranging from 
on the low end, 75% and oftentimes into the high 85 to 90% range um, of the lots that we sell go directly to collectors or their dealer agents. Very, very few coins are being bought for stock out of our sales, which just tells me that our coins are going to the end user, um, which is great because at some point there's a really strong chance that we'll see those coins again when those collections become available for sale. The other metric that we like to look at is how many new collectors are coming in. And that's that's important also because for many years, I'm sort of now in the quote-unquote middle age of, of uh, numismatics, of professional numismatists. Um, you know, I'm going to be 40 in a, in next year. So there's a Obviously, there are people who are older than I am, inv seriously involved in numismatics, people who are my mentors. Um, and then there's a fresh crop of coin dealers who are coming up. And it's great to see that not only are there a fresh crop of coin dealers coming up, but there's collectors who are of the same age group that will be around to continue the hobby well into the future. One of the biggest fears that's kind of always been kicking around, and they've been talking about this, you can go back to the numismatist in the early 1900s, and there are articles, you know, foretelling of the aging of the hobby and how there's not enough young collectors picking up the mantle of collecting, and every generation, I think, fears that. Um, especially the last five or six years, there's kind of been this generational changeover um, as some of these, you know, storied collections of the previous generation coming up for auction, whether it's Gardner or Pogue, um, these collections that have been built over the course of many decades um, coming out into the market and, not knowing exactly who might be the buyers, but most of those coins are nowhere to be found on the marketplace. And they only come up when the collectors who bought those coins go to sell their collections. There's more than to the relationship between young people and the hobby or to the number of young collectors or the dearth of young collectors or, you know, the, the, what you're saying. And I think it, it seems right is that that's something over which the hobby has agonized for a long time. And it, you know, <laughs> hobby hasn't yet imploded. So maybe there's no reason to think that it will necessarily. But I'm curious then, you know, talking about, you know, when coins turn over into the market. And do you think that those you know, those moments when a major collection, you know, we're talking about the Dale Friend collection and the uh, Glorious Patterns collection, obviously, in the context of Regency 51. But do you think that those sort of, you know, major market events can help to stimulate collector interest or help collectors become more sophisticated, even if they don't buy anything? Just to see the sale happen, they can learn what's out there. I think that that definitely happens. One of the things that we've noticed, um, on Legend Numismatics side, um, after Bob Simpson's patterns started go selling a couple years ago, is that with the release of so many coins that have been off the market for a long time, there's been a renewed interest in pattern coinage. And I think that does happen from time to time when there are collections that come out that coins that were not available finally do become available and people get a chance to look at them, it does spark an interest. Um, I want you know, going back a few years ago when I, you know, when I was elsewhere, you know, big colonial coin collections would bring out interest in colonial coinage. And then if, and there were lots of new people coming into into that market. Things that are that were once seen as sort of niche, when big groups come out, it does gain more mainstream attention. 
um, over the years, things that were not necessarily collected by anybody but the diehards, like red book varieties of early dollars or red book varieties of bust half dollars. That's really become a, a major area of people collecting. And I think the registry program has certainly helped that. Um, it gives people a guideline of what is there to collect, what holes need to be filled. And it gives them, and it gives everybody a chance to build a collection based on whatever their circumstances are. Um, so I think that region, I think that registry program that PCGS and NGC have has definitely helped bring in more collectors as well, because there's something about that, the hunt and the competition between collectors. Uh, there's definitely been, um, that's definitely also been a major driving force for the market. You mentioned that one of the sort of alternative benchmarks, if you want to look at it this way, for the success of a Regency auction beyond prices realized is this engagement of a new collector base like you were talking about. You're hoping to bring new people into the fold, cultivate new customers, etc. How has the Regency auction done with that over the course of its history, you know, decade plus, however, you know, however many years exactly over the over that course of time? Has have you noticed a lot of new people come in? Is that something that legend has tracked? We, we've tracked it, um, you know, sort of, in, it's been informal, but we have tracked it. Um, when the market is strong, like it is now, we see lots of new people coming in. When the market was weaker, there were fewer people coming in. But over the last two years, a lot of it since COVID began, there's been a lot of new collectors come in. And that's because of multiple factors that I think every collectible um, industry, every area of collectibles has seen. Um, you've had people who have had more time to dedicate to hobbies, whether it's coins, comic books, art, whatever it is, um, video games, you know, we, piece, you know, p these companies are grading video games now uh, for collectors. Um, so you've got a lot of people who are spending time collecting things that they might not have otherwise done. And with the time that they've had away from their office, they can work from home, maybe be able to dedicate some time that, you know, that they would have been otherwise commuting to studying an area to collect. Um, it certainly didn't hurt that people couldn't travel. And so money that they had set aside to go on vacation or whatever it is, the money they saved from not having to commute to an office every day, they can put into a hobby really has been a force in our hobby. And I think that, you know, there were some fears that coming out of COVID would take some of the attention away from it, but I don't see that as having happened. I see a lot of collectors sticking with it and knowing that hobbies are important for our mental health. So people are not giving them up going back to the office. And so it would seem then that now finally getting the chance to be involved with the Central States Numismatic Society Convention coming up at the end of this month is going to be a good indication of the continuation of that. We mentioned about, uh, we've been talking about buyer, uh, bidders and we've been talking about consigners, but uh, what kind of a sense of satisfaction are you going to get when the, uh, le the Legend Regency 51 is completed at the end of this month? Well, um, I'll be happy that we've done a an auction in conjunction with what is a bellwether coin show in the calendar. Central States is among the, especially in its, its legacy has been that it's one of the major coin shows of the year. So that'll be great because we'll be able to put our name um, in that illustrious history that they've had. The other thing is that once the hammer, once the hammer falls on the last lot, we will have sold some very important coins 
and they'll go into the hands of collectors who really will appreciate what they've bought. So many of these coins are just so special that every coin in the sale will hold a special place in the next collection that they're in. And you've done your part to help this hobby and uh, continue to grow, and someone's personal collection really gets the benefit from that. We've been talking with Greg Cohen, the senior numismatist of Legend Rare Coin Auctions. Greg, good luck with Regency 51, and thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Chris. That was our interview with Greg Cohen of Legend Rare Coin Auctions. Obviously, you know, covering different sales, um, you know, Legends sales come up in our our coverage uh, fairly frequently. So it was really interesting to get kind of a little bit of a look behind the curtain uh, and learn a few details about the history and the sort of preparation process for the Regency Auctions. And it's always fun, you know, to hear from our guests a little bit about their own numismatic journeys. So... You know, we hope that you enjoyed it. We had a great time talking to Greg and we appreciate his time. If you enjoyed that interview, if you enjoyed any of our previous content, please remember to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. Yes, indeed. Appreciate that. If you happen to be at Central States uh, in Schaumburg, stop by and talk to us here at the Coin World booth. We're going to be on hand there, uh, hopefully recording a few podcasts and shaking a few hands and checking out all the great things that are going to be found there. But uh, when we get some reports back on this one, we know there's some very special events that are going to be taking place. And we'll tell more about that as we get closer to the date right now. But once again, we do appreciate your support here. Make sure you check out all those links that we have and so you can find out more about some of the stories we've been mentioning right here. But again, we do appreciate you and look forward to you being a part of each and every one of our podcasts here from the Coin World Podcast. Our thanks again to the fine folks at Coin World Plus. We're going to have to get into some more information about them in an upcoming episode for sure. So right now, the clock on the wall says that's all. We're going to wrap it up. So until next time. Happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.